Hi, this is Norman Horn, founder of LCI. We are excited to announce that the LCI team is going to be attending Freedom Fest this July 13th through 16th in Las Vegas, Nevada. We're going to have an exhibitor booth and a breakout session where we will be talking with everybody we can about how to make the Christian case for a free society. Find out more about LCI's participation at Freedom Fest by going to libertarianchristians.com slash events. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I am your host, Doug Stewart. And if you're watching on our YouTube channel, you can see that I have none other than Michael Heiss joining me today. And we're going to talk about the anatomy of a party takeover. Michael, thanks for joining me. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. I hope you like my nod to Rothbard in our title today. I didn't even see it yet, so I'm sure I will, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we're going to call this the anatomy of a party takeover, so oh, we'll, we'll okay. kind of work with title. that. Got yeah, it. yeah. I like it. Yeah, so, you know, you've been involved with the Libertarian Party for a handful of years, and for those who haven't paid attention to all things LP and even just libertarianism in general over the past month or so, because that's when kind of the culminating news has broken why don't you give people a backstory a little bit of like, how did you become a libertarian? I think if I remember correctly, it began with Ron Paul like it did with me, but I'll let you kind of back up and give us a, an origin story of your involvement. So yeah, I would say Ron Paul is definitely the thing that made me a full-fledged libertarian. I mean, I was kind of on the periphery already by that point. I was into like Alex Jones and Infowars and stuff like that when I was like 14 years old. You know, so I was getting into conspiracy theories and the Infowars show and documentaries and all that stuff back when YouTube wasn't quite as controlled as it is now. And I think I might have first encountered Ron through Infowars. Definitely saw him in the documentary Freedom to Fascism that came out sometime back in that range. And yeah, so I mean, Ron Paul was the thing, you know, in the 2008 election, his debate performances, I started seeing that on YouTube, started following the Daily Paul you know, me and my friends got into it. Like, I well, you know, my two best friends and basically we were all alone and people kind of forget how different the internet was back then. You know, my family had a computer in the living room with a dial-up internet that we all shared, you know, and social media was not what it is today, you know? So I didn't know anybody. I didn't know what to do. You know, I just kind of watched from the sidelines and kept going down the rabbit hole. And then by the time 2011 came around, me and that same small group of friends, we knew we had to do something. You know, we didn't know what, but we knew we had to do something. Yeah. So what we did was we went out and bought a bullhorn. And I actually have this on video on YouTube, but we bought a bullhorn and went down to the Federal Reserve Building of Philly, which is right across the street from the First Amendment Center. So I started from the Federal Reserve side bullhorning over to the First Amendment Center, you know, just talking points that I had picked up from Ron Paul, you know, facts about the Fed and all of that. And we kept doing this. And at first, it was just me and my buddy Kyle. And then there was like four or five people that showed up. Then there was like 12. Then there was like 40. And this all happened in like rapid succession. And by the time those 40 showed up, what had happened was I had stumbled onto a, an underground group of activists in the Philly area called Truth, Freedom, Prosperity. And they were in support of Ron Paul, but they weren't necessarily a libertarian group per se. Definitely not involved with the party. But it was just this eclectic group of like anarchists and survivalists and conspiracy theorists and libertarians and, you know, all supporting Ron. And 
they were very active. They had regular events. So once I kind of found that underground world, I just never looked back. Yeah. And been here ever since. So when Ron Paul was running for candidate in 2008, I should have worn my Ron Paul shirt for this because <laughs> <laughs> we're recording it on video. I did wear it yesterday though, for some reason. I forget why. But anyway, what was some of the highlights in that campaign that like really stick out to you in your memory? The Giuliani moment. Yeah. Yeah. The Giuliani moment was the big one. I wasn't really political before that, but it's just everything that he said was just straight up truth, you know, and and I had never gotten involved in politics. and I just kind of regarded it all as BS and, you know, not worth my time. But his courage, I would say, especially in being anti-war is the thing that really got to me. And, you know, I would go as far as to say that it wasn't just like his principle and all that stuff. He served for like a role model for me personally at a time in my life that was pretty, pretty dark. You know what I mean? And, and, you know, I really needed a role model at that point in time in my life. And he served that for me with his courage, with his consistency and his bravery and kind of gave me something to strive to be like at a time where I really needed that. Yeah, no, he's kind of the, he's the grandpa we would rather have as president (laughs) right now. (laughs) Yeah. My moment in that was actually twofold. One was when he said that we should turn the other cheek and he got booed in South Carolina at a debate. And I was like, wow, that's ridiculous. And then the other one was when Rick Perry tried to say he was going to abolish three departments and Ron Paul kind of <laughs> leaned, like live in the he debate in this casual him. way. He leans over and he goes, no, there's five. <laughs> well, no, no. Perry couldn't remember which three he wanted, he himself wanted to abolish. Correct. It was. Yeah, right. And he was like, transportation, I forget what the three were, but then you could hear Ron going, HUD, HUD. <laughs> you know, uh, like, okay, okay. <laughs> I thought he, I, okay, my memory was that he was saying like, no, there's more than just three, but we'll have to go back and look at the tape, I suppose. But Ron Paul ran as a Republican and he was very, you know, openly, I'm a libertarian running as a Republican, that kind of thing. And so since then, there hasn't really been anybody anywhere close to being libertarian in the Republican Party in terms of a national candidate. Maybe Rand Paul, if you want to kind of include him, but it didn't last very long. So we have the Libertarian Party, which is the third largest party in the U.S., by a long shot, number three at this point. But what was wrong with the Libertarian Party back then or back between now and then? Well, then and now. like I said, prior to Ron Paul, I never really got political and I never joined the GOP. You know, I never became a member. I mean, I registered as a Republican to support Ron, but that's it. I didn't really get involved in politics per se. And it didn't even feel like what we were doing was political. It just felt like, you know, it kind of felt like we were this ragtag team of people saving the world. <laughs> you know, like that's that's what it felt like. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I went from Ron Paul getting into the Constitution and all of that stuff. I went down to Florida for the uh, GOP National Convention to support Ron down in Tampa. And, you know, after that, when they screwed him, I started getting into some anarchist literature like, you know, Lark and Rose. And, you know, I became an angry ANCAP. So, you know, at that point in time, I kind of just saw voting. I became basically anti-political, anti-voting, all of that. And, you know, started doing a lot of street activism. So I started doing a lot of like cop lock type of stuff, man on the street interviews with people. And I was very focused on like the police state and a lot of my activism. But then mm-hmm. as time went on, you know, I kind of felt that being as immersed in that as I was, was kind of getting to be bad for my soul. <laughs> you know, I was extremely mm. angry and just immersing myself in these horrible videos of people being abused by cops all the time. And just it's all the time, you know, and it was making me very like enraged and it wasn't good for me. And I, I still wasn't, 
I would say fully mature yet at that point either. So at some point, I went through kind of a personal tragedy in my personal life, a personal heartbreak. And that kind of took me out of the game for a while, maybe a year and a half. And when I started wanting to come back in, it was at that point that I was like, okay, I've done the shotgun approach. You know, I've done some writing, I've done podcasting, I've done man on the street stuff, I've done videos, I've done all this stuff. Now I want to pick something that I want to like focus on long term and stick with it. And, you know, I wasn't sure if the Libertarian Party could be the thing that did that. So I actually supported Rand Paul for the 2016 primary. Uh-huh. And it wasn't until he fizzled out that I really even entertained the Libertarian Party because Rand is playing a fundamentally different game than Ron. I would personally include Rand as a Libertarian, but he's no doubt playing a fundamentally different game than Ron. And I think that's why he didn't take off the way that Ron did. He tried to conform to politics and you know go for the election instead of spreading an idea and spreading a message. And that's the thing that really animated Ron's campaign. So once that fizzled out, I, for the first time, took a look at the uh, Libertarian Party and said, all right, I wonder if this is it. And I organized an End the Fed rally in 2017 at the Philly Federal Reserve Building. And there's like a rich history of these events there. But for the first time, I included Libertarian Party candidates. I had Larry Sharp come out. I had Murray Sabrin come out. I had Adam Kokesh come out. I had some cryptocurrency related speakers. And, you know, like over 300 people showed up. And I was like, huh, maybe this can work, you know? And by that point, I was already kind of formulating the idea of the Mises Caucus and how I was going to approach this. But that was the spark that made me go, huh, maybe this is viable where I didn't think it would be before. Yeah. Okay. So where did it go from there? I mean, you you kind of narrowed your focus there through those series of events. I mean, how did you even get... Is it like you just had to register? Did you... Like, what does it mean to start the Mises Caucus? Like, how does that even begin? For somebody like me, I don't actually even know. Like, if I decided, you know what? I'm going to start a caucus in the LP. I wouldn't even know what to do other than call you and say, what do I do? Which is... <laughs> There's <what> nothing <laughs> formal. Yeah. Okay. There's nothing formal. Like, we're not officially recognized by the party or anything like that. Okay. It's just an informal grassroots coalition of volunteers that happen to be inside the Libertarian Party. So I made a Facebook group. <laughs> that's that's it. it. Okay. And, you know, I got some help early on because I had been toying with the idea of this for a while, you know, making the caucus and all that. And then just one day I said, screw it, I'm going to make it and see what happens. And by that point, mm. I hadn't like fully committed to the idea or anything yet. But what ended up happening is the night that I made the group, hours after I made the group, the former chair at that point, Nick Sarwark, he had said that the Mises Institute that night is the preferred think tank of Nazis. So I woke up the next day and there was like 600 people in my group that flooded in as a result of that. You know, the chair of the Libertarian Party saying the Mises Institute is Nazis, like what? <laughs> you know, and so there was all of this kind of angry energy that was in the group, but still there was like a flood of 600 people just from the start. And yeah. I've always kind of considered that to be somewhat like providential. And there's been a lot of experiences like that where it's just the right thing at the right time and that can't really be explained. And so I just took it and ran with it and rallied people to my cause. And, you know, a big help, especially at that time, was Josh Smith being our chair candidate because that kind of gave us a tip of the spear kind of point to run into the party with and say, okay, listen, we can't have you know, a libertarian party whose leadership is saying the Mises Institute is Nazis and that Ron Paul's a racist and, you know, all this stuff. Like most of us are libertarians because of Ron Paul. You know, we can't have this. Yeah. So basically it was just very organic, very grassroots rallying people to our cause at that 
beginning point. You know, it wasn't until after the 2018 Libertarian Party National Convention that we really hunkered down and got serious about like creating state level teams and all that kind of thing. Yeah. So it sounds like Nick Sarwark was somewhat of a recruiter for you and, and, he always has been. In an unintentional way. <laughs> yeah. No, he always has been in a weird way. At one point, I, I remember back in, uh, I believe it was 2019, where Sarwark debated Dave Smith about like, yeah. like the direction of the Libertarian Party. And I hosted a, uh, a panel conversation at Gene Epstein's house after that. And at that house, I ended up giving Sarwark a hug in front of everyone and thanked him for being like a good nemesis. Yeah. That's great. that's great how many people were at that event the panel that you just talked about there had to be about 200 people crammed into his house in gene's house yeah something like that it was i've been there 200 is quite a lot yeah it was jammed (laughs) i was shocked and that's kind of again that's that's, that's like my whole thing is i have very low expectations even to this day i kind of have this mentality of like no one's showing up you know Mm. no one actually cares yeah yeah And then you see stuff like that. It's like, wow, you know, and it keeps happening. So, Yeah, well, I remember that debate pretty strongly in my memory. And and it seems like the grassroots movement that you wanted to start was well watered after that debate because that got the word out that there was another way of doing this available and there was passion behind it by someone who's clearly a strong communicator. That is Dave. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, Dave getting like really involved and really throwing his hat in the ring and really strongly representing us consistently and recruiting for us consistently. That has been the explosion for sure that has put us over the top. I mean, we had a pretty good head of steam in 2020 for that convention. We had about 40% of the convention in that year. And it was after that, that Dave really went hard in our corner. And, you know, we were getting 70, 30 results at this most recent convention about a month ago. Yeah. So, you know, he really put us over the top. And there's been another, you know, explosion in the time since then of people joining up. And I'm really, really curious to see what the national party membership numbers are looking like at the end of this month. Yeah, that'll be good to see. So the movement itself, you said a few minutes ago and that there was a lot of local and state level things to get into place. And, you know, I think of this, I picture what's happening at the LP last month. We're recording this in 2020. I guess if people are watching or listening, they kind of can notice that with the data on their podcast feeds. But the LP party for 2022, the national convention, was essentially taken over by the Mises Caucus. And when I think of takeover, I think, you know, majority vote, majority presence. And in this case, it was a significant majority, not just like 51%. Yeah. Which would have been fine, right? But like, it feels good to have (laughs) 70%, right? But what does it actually mean to say there was a takeover? Was it more like, like, I don't even understand how this works. I know there's things called delegates and stuff like that. But like for some of us who are less involved, tell me a little bit about that. So basically every two years, every even year, the Libertarian Party has a national convention. And the process that leads up to that national convention is that state parties have their own conventions and they have different rules there. They might have, like here in Pennsylvania, we have conventions every single year. It's awful. And, uh, you know, some of them might be every two years, you know, and basically you have your state level conventions. Those conventions elect delegates from their own membership to send to national to represent that state. And this happens in all 50 states around the country. So you have upwards, I think this year it was like 1,055 
delegate slots available to go and be a voting delegate at the national convention. And then once you get elected at your state level, you go out there and at the national convention every two years, that's where we have a chance to vote on new leadership, to vote on changes to the bylaws, vote on changes to the platform, and then in presidential years to nominate our presidential and vice presidential candidates. Right. So did you have to come with like, did you have to make like proposals to the things that you had to vote for? Or was this just like things like we want Angela McArdle to be the new chair and that's what we're going to all rally to Reno to do? It was both. So like you said, oh, it would have been fine if we won by 51%. That's not how we felt. We felt that we wanted to come in in dominant fashion and show that major changes had happened to this party Mm -hmm. as a narrative, as a culture, principally everything. And I don't think that that would have happened if we just eked out a 51-49. You know, we feel that the party has been horribly mismanaged for quite some time to this point. And, you know, we didn't want to leave any air in the lungs, so to speak, after this convention. So we came in, we had not just Angela McArdle for chair, but an entire leadership slate for every position on the LNC. And they all won. And then we had several platform changes that we wanted to implement. We had some changes that we would have liked to make on the bylaws, but we kind of knew that that probably wasn't going to, we weren't even going to get to that this year. Yeah. Yeah. And we've got all but one of our platform changes. And the only reason we didn't get the one was time. You know, we ran out of time in the convention, but I'm sure we'll end up talking about this, but the the removal of the abortion plank was a big one for us that we wanted. The removal of the quote unquote woke language in section 3.5 was a big one. Adding secession back into the platform was a big one. Adding a definition of like property and aggression was another really big one. And we got all of that stuff. Yeah, I do want to talk about that. So back to the question of sort of strategic implementation, it seems like there needs to be a lot of manpower going on there, like and even resources. I mean, you got to convince people to take time off work to get there. Like there's a lot of people who volunteered to simply, you know, make this happen. I mean, I'm friends with a couple of these people and it seems like a huge effort. And was this your first foray into sort of, what's the word here? Motive. I want to say motivating, but that's not what I, what, what the word I'm looking at, but empowering people and sort of pushing people organizing. toward organizing. Yeah. Hurting people. I don't know, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I think kind of gives us our, we'll call it our spirit because I never went to college. I was never an entrepreneur before this. I kind of worked BS jobs. You know, I was started going to school to be a paralegal when this thing all started to take off. But yeah, no, I mean, the most I had done at that point was kind of organizing events around Philly. You know, the biggest event that I've probably ever done prior to this was in 2013. I organized a nationwide and the Fed rally at every branch and sub-branch in the country simultaneously. Yeah. But I've always had kind of a knack for... or. It always felt intuitive to me of like strategy and like, we need to be doing that and we should be doing this. And, you know, like, and, and, you know, it never happened. And one of the big things that was really awful was, you know, after the Ron Paul campaign ended, we were all united after that. But then there wasn't like that unifying figure, that unifying cause or whatever you want to call it. So everything started to dissipate. And then by the time 2015 hit, it got really bad because a bunch of people started just going nuts, you know, like, Alex Jones went nuts. Stephen Molyneux went nuts. Christopher Chase Rachel went nuts. Chris Cantwell went nuts. You know, a bunch of people that were seen as leaders in the scene just went nuts to try to catch that Trump wave, essentially. And, you know, there was a lot of fraction around that. And 
it became very obvious to me that we needed that Ron Paul revolution energy. So uh, that's what I was setting out to do. But to answer your question, yeah, no, this was my first real effort in something like this. But I think, again, because of that lack of experience, I've been able to maintain a very grassroots vibe to this whole thing. And that's very important to me. Well, I was just going to say, do you think this is one of the reasons it might actually last longer than the wave of Ron Paul, like that this is going to actually stick for a while? I think so. Yeah, I think so. And one of the kind of big picture goals that I always had with this and that we have with this thing is that Ron Paul, you know, is as incredible as he is, he's one man that was one campaign, you know? And so when that campaign ended and he didn't win and the natural result is for things to dissipate and for people to start going out and branching off in their own different directions or whatever. And my observation was that if we could ever recapture that energy or recapture that kind of positive feedback loop that he had started with his campaign under the guise of an organization or institution, that it never has to end. It could just continue to snowball and snowball and snowball. Yeah. And that's what we're trying to do here. Yeah. It's nice to know that that's sort of the approach here, because when you want to get behind a single individual, you know, I mean, obviously, we can see what happened with Obama. We can see what happened with Donald Trump. There's just a lot of like momentum behind a charismatic figure. And there's nothing wrong with having a charismatic figure. But it does seem like there's a wave that like, okay, that's good. And hopefully that wave has watered the grassroots, if I can use that weird metaphor or analogy. But like, that is kind of what happened here. I mean, obviously, this is a product of the Ron Paul revolution. Absolutely. If I'm not mistaken, you call this the Ron Paul revolution 2.0. Am I right? Yep, that's exactly what we're yeah. going for. You know, I would say intellectually, philosophically speaking, you know, we're in the tradition of Mises and Rothbard and Hayek and Bastiat mm-hmm. and all of that. But the spirit of it is Ron Paul. Yeah, yeah. Hi, everyone. I just wanted to let you know that LCI has another podcast called the Faith Seeking Freedom Podcast. It's a little bit different from what you're used to. And because it's very different, we don't want to keep it in this podcast feed. So you can actually go subscribe to the Faith Seeking Freedom podcast wherever you get your podcast. The Faith Seeking Freedom podcast is a podcast that is entirely question and answer. And because we've kept each episode short, we can actually release them more frequently. And you can actually listen to them in a shorter time frame. And you can even share them with friends or people that you want to spread the message of liberty. So check out and subscribe to the Faith Seeking Freedom podcast. Okay, back to the regular podcast. So... You get to the convention, you had a little bit of pushback, of course, because you know, Nick Sarwark didn't want this to, you know, he didn't want you to see this through. Is there anything interesting about the convention itself that is important to note in terms of your struggle? I want to say your struggle, that's a terrible phrase to use in this situation <laughs> here, but your fight for the takeover. What was that like at the convention now? I mean, the convention was a lot of fun. I mean, This was our third convention, you know, and to be honest with you, we kind of came into this one knowing we had a pretty good idea of how this was going to go down. You had mentioned earlier of like, it seems like it takes a lot of manpower and it seems like it takes a lot of effort and it really does. I mean, we have a national coordinator. What produced the result that you saw is in the preceding four or five years, yeah, we're going to be five in August. In the preceding four and a half years, you know, we had basically become the majority in one way, shape or form in about 37 states. Now, that can mean we took the chair. It can mean that we took the majority of the delegates, but maybe we don't have the majority of the board in that state. You know, there's kind of a loose definition there. But we had become the majority in about 37 states. So we had a national coordinator that I worked with closely for quite some time to kind of get all of these people in place to, 
you know, we have tools and resources available for all of our organizers. We generate leads from them. We've given them the framework on how to onboard these people, how to reach out to them, how to cold call, you know, all of that stuff and how to train them. And that's what's happened across the country is we have about 260 organizers in all 50 states. And, you know, so they bring people in, people hear about us, maybe through Tom Woods or maybe through Dave or maybe on their own, you know, and they come in and we do our best to as quickly as possible, hit them while that lead is hot, bring them into an onboarding meeting to essentially tell them who we are, what we're all about, what we're doing, what we're planning, what's your questions, are you down? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And, yeah. and that's been going on for a few years now. So, you know, we did that. And then me and, and our board came up with what we called our strategic action plan, which is basically we had an entire plan of, all right, we want to do this. We want to vote for that. We want to use the rules to change this over here. You know, like an entire front to back, this is what we want to do in this convention. So we did yeah. that and we held very extensive training for about two months where we invited all of our delegates and basically had an open debate with them of like, hey, guys, this is what we, the board, want to do. Is there anything about this that makes you squeamish? You know, we're going to try to remove the chair. You know, we're going to do this or that. We're going to change the rules to make this a little easier over here. You know, and basically say, here's our vision. Are you guys cool with that? Because it's all volunteers. You can't make people do anything beyond what they're comfortable doing. Yeah. So we had that kind of consensus building exercise. We got them prepared and people came in and we were a unit, man. We were a unit. I mean, we had a professional parliamentarian working with us and helping us with Robert's rules and all that crap. It's the worst part of this whole game. You know, <laughs> he told us that like the way that we had the crew whipped and working together is better than he's seen in like the House of Commons. Like that, that was nice. the best whip crew that he'd ever seen. So yeah. Yeah. That's really good. I mean, obviously that's the most frustrating part to have to kind of learn and deal with those rules. But at the same time, they seem to have worked in your favor because you knew what was coming. Right. Well, basically we had set things up in such a way that even if they knew what was coming, there wasn't much they could do. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Did you have any concerns or maybe actual trouble with sort of like fakers infiltrating, like pretending to be Mises Caucus members to sort of sabotage? Or did no. they just not think it was worth their time to try because they didn't see this coming? I don't know the motivations for why they didn't do it. I have my suspicions, but no, we didn't really have an issue with that. And I think they would get sussed out because again, we, yeah. we train our organizers on, they have an onboarding process that they do and they do that onboarding process on Zoom and we encourage them to get people on video and then we encourage them to do political activity with through what we call our three-pronged strategy, but not just that, but social events. And, you know, really make sure you're turning these stupid spreadsheets that you're working with into a culture. And that's when it gets fun. Once yeah. it ceases being a spreadsheet and you have a community, it's really fun. You know, yeah. and okay, people would have to be pretty dedicated to go and fake for a year. You know what I mean? And not get caught and make us think that they're somebody that they're not when they have no yeah. way of knowing that they would win out in the end. You know what I mean? I just don't think it's worth their while. And I... I don't want to say this about everybody who is, you know, not in agreement with us or who has been opposed to us, but I feel like we're coming from a fundamentally different motivation here. Yeah. I think, again, not everybody, but I think there is some subset of people that just got replaced who more or less having these little titles and all this stuff is like a form of therapy for them. I don't think liberty is actually the top of the value hierarchy for them. Wow. I, okay. Yeah. I, I think this has been a social club. I think this has been a jobs program. And I think people have gotten to a point where they've gotten in, they have relationships, 
the maintenance of those relationships have become more important than the work of expanding liberty. And some people are ideologues and that limits some of the strategic avenues that are available to them, even if maybe those are obvious avenues. So yeah, I just, I think there's a lot of problems there with the people that we just replaced and that we're coming from, you know, I think some of these people are older and maybe jaded, you know, and I think we are a lot of young, fresh energy that is enthused and excited to be working together and that we see an opportunity in front of us that is unprecedented, you know, off the back of the COVID lockdowns and the passports and all of that. Yeah. And I think that was a lot of momentum too, as well, because the LP seemingly didn't really stand up at a time when government tyranny was pretty strong. And it's like, this was your chance to say no. And it kind of missed the boat. Hey, everyone, if you're like me, you listen to a lot of podcasts by producers and creators who have a listener support model. Sometimes people call it the Patreon model, where they ask listeners to give them money to keep the podcast going because they want a list of supporters. And there's certain benefits to doing that. They offer you know free episodes ahead of time or bonus content and so forth. LCI has taken a different approach because we're a 501c3 nonprofit. We operate solely on the donations of those who are generous and love what we do. Now, we are totally appreciative of the fact that we have a growing audience and everybody's sharing our content. But if you'd like to be one of the people who donate to the Libertarian Christian Institute because we're a nonprofit, it's actually tax deductible. You can do that at libertarianchristians.com slash donate. You can donate in a number of ways, some of which incur fees for us and some of which do not. And you can either choose to pay those fees or not. However you want to do it, any small amount actually helps. We actually do encourage people to sign up for some sort of monthly contribution. So that gives us a better sense of how things are going to go each month through the year. So even if it's as little as five, 10 bucks a month, that really helps us a lot. You know, that really adds up when more and more people do it. So we appreciate all of your support, whether it's sharing, liking, reviewing, and doing all that. But we, of course, appreciate an actual financial donation to the Libertarian Christian Institute. Before we run out of time, I do want to talk a little bit about some of the controversies and actually the reactions. And let's talk about the reactions first. Like, Nick Gillespie interviewed you and Zach Weissmuller created a, I think it was like 20 to 30 minute documentary on Reason's YouTube channel. You know, I've watched it twice and sort of listened to Nick and Zach's conversation about it. In my estimation, not really knowing a whole lot of like how things went down, it seemed pretty fair. What's your assessment of how they dealt with it? So there was an article in the immediate aftermath that me and a lot of other people felt was very much so not fair. (laughs) You know, I Mm. mean, they, they alluded to us being racist right in the subheader, you know, and, yeah, and yeah. all of that. So that article was pretty screwed up. But I totally agree that the videos have been great. I still think that they focused a little bit too much on the, well, are you friends with Steve Bannon? Are you a bunch of Republicans? Yeah. And it's like, if we're a bunch of Republicans, that means we're pulling votes into the Libertarian Party and hurting the Republican Party. Like, use your head. You know what I mean? Like, and yeah. So I, I think they focused on a lot of that and maybe not enough on kind of the new energy and what we're actually trying to do and why and how and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, I think that stuff shown through because I'll tell you what, you go and look at those videos and you read the comments, it's pretty strong, overwhelming support, you know, and, and to an extent that's really, frankly, shocking to me. I mean, my video, the full interview with me has a good bit more number of views than Justin Amash. And I guarantee that a lot more people know who Justin Amash is than me. <laughs> and it's very strong support. A lot of people in the comments saying like, what I was saying in particular is why they're not in the Libertarian Party. They want to come back in now and, you know, all of that. So, yeah, I don't know if you heard Nick Gillespie and Zach's conversation. 
I mean, I think it's a pretty good, I don't want to say endorsement because it's not really an endorsement, but when Nick Gillespie from Reason says at the end that he's at peace with what happened, you know that like something good has happened that he's, I can't say he's endorsing it, but like that was actually a pretty good positive statement in a good direction. Yeah, what I got from that conversation was that they came in with a certain, perhaps with a certain preconceived notion that we're these right-wingers or some stuff or something like that and had a lot of concerns around that. But then when they actually saw us, when they actually saw, and this is something that I really emphasize, but when they actually saw the community and they saw the energy and the enthusiasm and the excitement and the, dare I say, diversity, <laughs> you know, like they... I think that maybe took them aback a little bit. And I don't think they're going to agree with our stances on, say, abortion or immigration. But that's okay. You know, and yeah, I would argue that like our whole stance on immigration is to not really have a stance, at least as an organization. I mean, every individual is going to have their own, sure. their own views on these things. But like as an organization, we don't have them. We're the ones trying to be the inclusive party. You know what I mean? Like we're the ones trying to bring in and say, listen, if you are an anarchist who believes in private borders or you're a minarchist who believes in completely open borders, you know, there's room here for you. And we as a caucus, you know, I think we have shown that flexibility. I mean, we yeah. we hardcore endorsed Jacob Hornberger for president, even against Amash in 2020. Yep. And Hornberger was hard. I mean, he's vociferously open border. Yeah, you know, and right. as long as you're a plumb line libertarian down the line on these other things and a good messenger, I kind of would vote up and down the spectrum there. But yeah. when it comes to the platform, you know, you said people have reactions, right? There's all these reactions of like, oh my God, the party has gone right wing. It's like, we didn't take a pro-life stance. We simply made it neutral. We made it truly neutral, you know? Yeah. And, and that is now right wing for people who happen to be on the pro-choice side of the equation here. And it's hysterical and it's ridiculous. But, um, you know, I think that neutrality is what's going to give us maximum representation as a party because there really is a whole bunch of pro-life minarchists there really is a whole bunch of pro-choice anarchists. And yeah, unless you want to have an extremely wonky plank that explains the difference in first principles between the classical liberals who are on one side of the libertarian spectrum and the Hoppian anarcho-capitalists that are on the other and how those first principles manifest in the spectrum on immigration, and, which is ridiculous. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and then it's You just have to make a white paper. You have to turn a white paper into a plank. <laughs> exactly. And people think I'm coming from this place if it's like, well, you just want to appear to right-wingers. It's like, no, I want to represent libertarians. And the party has been representing right. one sect of libertarians and then using yeah. the fact that they have the majority for years to basically say, no, you're bad. You're not a libertarian if you're somewhere else on the spectrum. Only my part of the spectrum yeah. is libertarianism. And that's wrong. And I think what they fear, personally, I think what they might fear here is that I said this in the interview. I think Ron Paul is kind of the archetype for the modern libertarian movement. And I'm willing to bet that the market of libertarians, so to speak, probably would trend a little bit more socially traditional, you know, or have traditional values, or maybe there's a lot of Christians or all that. And where if the market of libertarians came in, maybe it would trend a little bit more that way. And yeah. the people who are on the left side of the equation culturally are afraid of that. That's my opinion. But for me, it's like, hey, if it okay. all shakes out, it's not like I'm forcing it. Yeah. No, I hear you. With the abortion removal, did you have people who were individually pro-choice who thought this was a good move? Yeah. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Because again, it's, it's, the argument is simple. People basically want to say, well, I'm pro-choice, so therefore the platform should reflect my preferences. You know what I mean? Whereas what I'm saying is there is a lot of latitude between a Mises-type, Hayek-type classical liberal and a HAPA anarcho-capitalist. 
And this is a libertarian party that represents all of that. You know what I mean? Like, so you're going to have variants. Like, there's not much variance on the drug war or on the wars. You know what I mean? But on these right. other issues yeah. where, again, those differences in first principles between minarchism and anarchism kind of manifest themselves in the form of a spectrum on certain issues, namely immigration and abortion. And that's kind of my whole thing is that we really should be trying to represent that whole spectrum. Yeah. So the other plank I think that was removed or maybe it was reworded was the one on bigotry. And I believe if what I'm remembering from hearing about the story behind this is that bigotry was kind of introduced pretty early in the 70s into the party, the anti-bigotry plank or statement that was in there. And that has been removed or reworded. You can correct me. What what happened it was, there? It was reworded. But to be clear, that language was added in, I think, 76 originally. But okay. then in the 80s, it was removed. And then it appeared again in 2008. So there's actually more okay. of a party's history that did not have that specific language okay. than did. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna just be straight up about this one because based on the changes that were made on it, I'm kind of like, okay, that sounds really good. But like, wouldn't it look bad that you're removing a plank that says that you're against bigots? Like, what's the harm in saying you're against such a thing? Well, or, or letting to, other people see that? It quote unquote looks bad to say that we're in favor of legalizing heroin, but we care about the truth. So, okay. And the truth is, is that, well, several things. One is that libertarianism isn't something that tells you how to think. It's a political philosophy that gives you basically a baseline on the relationship between the people and the government and what is the appropriate use of force, if any, in a monopolized state. You know, so like that's what libertarianism is. So the more we kind of get into this, well, you should think that or you should think this, you know, okay, maybe we should individually promote a culture that embraces, let's say, personal responsibility, because I think that's the only way that liberty will thrive. Yeah, It shouldn't invade your thoughts. You know, like there's people who are great libertarians that reform their lives and maybe they used to be bigots in the past or maybe they were even violent in the past. You know, like Maj used to, Raj Touré used to rob drug dealers. You know what I mean? Like, and he just was cited in the Supreme Court case that knocked down the concealed carry ban in, in New mm-hmm. York. You know what I mean? So like people can change and we shouldn't judge them like in that way up front and chase people out. And kind of on the more meta level is that I find that there's a difference between libertarians who do and don't under like we focus on the power of the state a lot. And that makes a lot of sense because that's the foundation of the party and the philosophy. But at the same time, you kind of have this concept of the cathedral. And I would argue that while the nature of the state is monopoly on force, that's not the number one method of control that they use. That's like what they default to. That's the iron fist underneath the velvet glove. The main method of control that they use is mind control, to, you know, just to put a bow on it. Like, that's yeah. why they have the media. That's why academia is propagandizing our kids. That's why Hollywood and all of entertainment is all espousing the same narrative that leads to the same ideology. And I would argue that language like we condemn bigotry as irrational and repugnant, we're in a society today that that's already the norm. We have been moving away from it. So it's kind of like saying slavery is irrational and repugnant. You're not really making a statement there. And you're not making a statement that has to do with libertarian principle. So what it sounds like to people who are aware of what I'm getting at with like the whole cathedral and, you know, they shape Mm -hmm. the narrative, right? And the narrative is, is one of the narratives of today is that we live in a systemically racist society and there's systemic racism and, and all of this stuff. And that kind of feeds into that narrative. 
I feel very strongly that we as libertarians should not be repurposing the language and the narratives that the Republicans or the Democrats lay out in front of us and then try to repurpose them and say, oh, well, here's, you know, we're safe. We'll say your narrative, we're safe, and then come up behind that with libertarian principle. I think that's what Joe Jorgensen and Spike Cohen tried to do in the 2020 campaign, and it doesn't work. Right now, we don't have trust as a brand, like libertarians, I mean. And what we're going to have to do in order to force the conversation is one of two things. We're going to have to either show one of the other two in-groups that we are able to help them destroy their enemies, or we're going to have to become a threat to them Mm. and basically pierce that wall. Or we're going to have to gain trust. So in order to do that, we can't be espousing their own narrative and their own language. We have to come up with our own. And I think to the extent that we do use their language, they basically just can say, oh, well, he has the same narrative as the Democrats, so I can dismiss him. Because why go with them when I could just go with the Democrats? You know? Yeah. Well, that's the average person. They're going to be like, so what makes a libertarian a libertarian? And if all you say is the whole socially liberal and fiscally conservative, which is only telling you two specific things. It doesn't tell you the range and it also doesn't tell you the principled nature of libertarianism. Then people aren't going to actually get a real taste. They're going to be like, oh, well, yeah, what I care about is being socially liberal. So I'll just ignore you because I already have. Right. And I'll add to that, that people don't act out the premise that their political philosophy is at the top of their value hierarchy. You know, I mean, Really open-minded people are, people who are really interested in this, but this is a tiny minority of people. Generally speaking, people, they keep helping the state because the state gets them on the narrative. And this is the whole role of the cathedral. You know, they get them on some kind of feelings of justice, you know what I mean? Or something like that, and that we have to fix an injustice. And people get emotionally invested in the narrative and then can form their principles around that emotional feeling based on the Mm -hmm. narrative. But that narrative is the hook. You know what I mean? So you've got to nail the narrative. And that's what I'm saying. You cannot use the narrative that your enemies are using and then say you're different. Like, yeah, underneath principally, we might be different and radically different at that. But that's not what grabs people. you got to get them on that narrative level first and reel them into the principle. Yeah, gotcha. So this is now about one month or so behind you. What's next in your liberty career? I don't know if there's a career career ahead of you for you, but like, I'm guessing you have a little bit of a sigh of relief and a little bit of celebratory. I hope you took a small vacation or something. Oh, yeah. To yeah. celebrate that. But like, what's next for you? Well, I actually, it already is my career. This is my full-time job. So, but what's next for the caucus is we kind of have what you might call our immediate goals and then your long-term kind of more on the horizon goals. So we have what we call our three-pronged strategy, you know, and to be quick about it, that's, Party organizing. So that's like bringing people into the party, getting them to join their state parties, creating county affiliates. All the stuff that led into the success of the convention is party organizing. And then you've got candidates. And we specifically focus on local level candidates, like school board, city council, sheriff, mayor, judge, seats that if you won, you can nullify the federal government, or you can even nullify the state governments. And then uh, we basically jump from the local level up to president and We want to get a presidential candidate that can most effectively rally people into the party, which is a different goal than raise the most votes. And one of those two things has to be primary in your value, you know? Okay. And I would say rallying the most people into the party, rallying the most people into our ideas is long-term the thing that has to happen the most. 
you know, we've got to get that army of true believers because that's going to be your city council candidates. That's going to be the people who knock the doors of the city council candidates, you know, and, and all of that stuff. So then that's candidates. And then the third prong of the strategy is issue coalitions, which is, again, primarily locally aimed work with Republicans or Democrats or issue groups to kind of push the envelope on what's going on in your local town. So like here in Norristown, it's like the entire city council is Democrat. 75% of the voting population is Democrat. And weed legalization is on the Democrat Party of Pennsylvania platform. But it wasn't decrimmed here in this highly Democrat town. You know what I mean? So I took stock of that. I came ready with legislation, started showing up to city council meetings, made, you know, made some contacts and got it done. You know, and now I'm pushing the envelope here with psychedelics and I have interest on that. And you can kind of exploit the gap between what rank and file Democrats here want, like we decriminalization and what they're not being given by the political class here. And you can do that all over the place. I mean, you could do that with gun rights or taxes and in deep red areas. You can do that with Brianna's law or drug decriminalization. You know, you can do that with any number of things. And again, this is, I think collectively what happens is if we do this in pockets all over the country, we start to build that brand trust that I'm talking about. You know, and I think it's only from that place of brand trust where we can pierce the partisan divide yeah. and actually have the real conversations. So long story short, scaling up those efforts, scaling up local level candidates, scaling up the issue stuff, which is going to be my personal pet project, is I'm going to kind of be shifting roles within the organization to kind of be the issues guy nationally. And I'm already doing work there. We want to scale up our events that we do. You know, we did a pilot program last year that we called the Take Human Action Tour. The idea is that this is going to be our college student outreach and recruitment program. So we put people on the road like Michael Bolden to talk about nullification and like Tom Woods to talk about secession or like Jeff Dice to talk about Austrian economics or Maj to talk about, you know, the history of gun control and basically get our stars out on the road in front of students, get them invested in our ideas and then use that to recruit and yeah. you know, funnel them down. So that's one thing we want to scale up. And then we're hoping that we get the Dave and Maj ticket in 24. So that's the kind of horizon goal. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, I appreciate what you're doing. I also really want to respect your time. And thanks so much for joining me to talk about this. I'm sure you've relishing a lot of success here. And I wish you well. And I'm sure we'll talk again. Appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me. And if your audience appreciated this they can go to takehumanaction.com and sign up for our mailing list. But if you sign up for the mailing list, your information will also be routed to our state organizers and they will be reaching out and you can get involved through us. Takehumanaction.com. All right. Takehumanaction.com. We'll also put that in the show notes page. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.